0: I made a six part, seven hour documentary called Exploring Genius, and it is now available at Himalaya Audio. You can think of it as kind of like a spin off of You Are Not So Smart. And if you'd like to hear the first episode free and get two weeks of Himalaya for free, the link is over at youarenotso smart.com and my Twitter, which is at David McCraney, and the You Are Not So Smart Twitter account, which is at NotSmartBlog, and of course, Himalaya Audio, which is a website you can go to to Audio from Himalaya. Also, this Friday, You Are Not So Smart will be live on stage in New York City at Caveat. Links to that are also at those same places. You'll need proof of vaccination to attend, though, which is a nice segue into this audio from our guest in this episode.
1: I actually have to say I had a really cool thing this week. I gave a talk to the White House on Friday. Oh, no. And it was um, for the vaccination rollout around partisanship because it turns out that's the biggest predictor of vaccine hesitancy. They're trying to figure out like what they can do about this because in about a month, the problem that we have is gonna shift from how do we get as many vaccines out to everybody to how do we convince people to take them who don't wanna take them.
0: That is psychologist Jay Van Babel, professor of psychology and neuroscience and the director of the Social Identity and Morality Lab at NYU. And this audio is from back in March when, a month after getting vaccinated, I visited him at his apartment at NYU to talk about his upcoming book, The Power of Us, which is all about how social identities drive an enormous amount of our thoughts, feelings, and most importantly, our behaviors. And this episode is about that book. And you will hear a lot of stuff about social identity in this episode, even the fact that individuality is a social identity. So your propensity to act like an individual is something that you do because you're in a group. Also, we talk about the individual self, the relational self, collective self, how 50 people on an airplane are not a group, but the flight attendants are a group. Studies about when you are reminded that you're a banker, you act more like bankers act. Uh, Take a stinky shirt, a shirt that's been worn for a week, put it in a jar, Tell people that it's either a shirt that was worn by somebody in your group or in another group, and it'll change how stinky it seems to you. And we're going to talk about partisanship, social identities, and how they affect how people are behaving now, at this point in the pandemic, how it affects people's propensity or hesitancy to get vaccinated. So, yeah, this episode's about that book, and you'll hear all about it in a second. But before we get started, back in March when we had this conversation, we started out, as one does these days, talking about COVID, and I'm still astonished at how he predicted back in March exactly what was going to happen, exactly what was going to happen once the vaccine was available.
1: And Republicans are very hesitant, especially Republican men. And so that's going to be potentially the, the biggest issue, you know, w- once we get to this next month or so, uh, p- people can get it if they want it. Then it's going to be like, how do you convince the people who don't want to get it to get it for the benefit of like society and like herd immunity and not having more mutations in the community that are vaccine uh you know resistant to merge and stuff so if you'd
0: like to hear more about what jay and other experts had to say a year ago about vaccine hesitancy all of which was 100 percent correct and completely predicted the current state of attitudes in the united states check out episode 189 from a year ago in two weeks You can return here for a new episode about how to talk to people who are still vaccine hesitant. But in this episode, we sit down with Jay Van Babel to discuss this and more as we explore his new book, The Power of Us, harnessing our social identities to improve performance, increase cooperation and promote social harmony.
1: Down the middle of
0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 212.
1: The book is called The Power of Us, and it's with uh, my longtime friend and collaborator Dominic Packer. And uh, Dominic's expertise, we've published a number of papers together, but he has his own work on uh the psychology of dissent when people speak up and disagree when something's going wrong, uh, and also does work in leadership and organizations and management. And so we've really combined all of our work together to try to understand, um, how people develop identities with groups mm-hmm. and then how that shapes your behavior. And then when that goes wrong and becomes toxic, And when it can be kind of nudged or guided into a healthy direction where people can have a sense of solidarity, cooperate, and accomplish something impressive. Because uh, the, the thing that we argue is that this is maybe the core element of human nature, which is that we evolved in small groups and... Our ancestors were the ones who cooperated with others and got along and worked together. And if they didn't, they didn't make it. Yeah. And so we don't have those genes. <laughs>
0: I like this take. And this is something I've been trying to proselytize as well. Because there's a feeling when you're in a community, let's say you're in the rationalist or uh, humanist, skeptical, skeptics, atheist communities, and even scientific communities, where you don't feel like you're adhering to these Group things. You're like, it's no. It's all about this. It's all about uh, this value. It's all about adherence to to a code. Let's start there and walk backwards into some other things. What am I even talking about, Jay? The uh, the accuracy goals, belonging goals. I I spent time with flat earthers, and I noticed that their accuracy goals and belonging goals don't match. Uh, So they they don't have it. Their desire is to signal to each other that I'm a good member of the group by saying. I don't trust this institution, which makes them more wrong over time, it seems. Whereas um, some of these other communities, especially sci- scientific communities, you get your uh, group juices flowing by saying, look at me, I'm doing a good job of,
1: of vetting this or, or peer review. Tell me a little bit about all that. Yeah, so I, I think most of us, uh, maybe our, more, our most core need is to belong. Um, and, and so that creates a need to figure out how to fit in. Um, understand what other people believe, and share a similar belief set. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, we get to be part of the group. Mm -hmm. And so that's just something that's instinctive in humans. And if you study any single culture on Earth, people form coalitions, and they cooperate together, and they share norms together. So that is a guiding principle for us. Um, The problem is that sometimes that can lead us astray, is if we belong to a group that has false beliefs, Um, and so like a classic case of this is like cult groups, right? That they generate some weird belief system, but people really have this need to belong and they, you know, become part of this group and, and there's a culture that makes them feel warm and welcome and like part of something bigger and gives them a sense of meaning. Um, they can go and really fringe beliefs. Um, you also see this with like conspiracy theory groups. So flat earthers are a great example. And If you interact with a flat earther, I'm a scientist obviously and it's mind blowing to interact with somebody who believes the earth is flat. Um, Of course, I've never been to space so I haven't seen the shape of the earth. And so the reason that I've come to a conclusion that it's round and that's absurd is just through the accumulation of scientists doing work on this and studying it and, and um, challenging dogma you know, hundreds of years ago about the, the shape of the earth. And so, um, but I'm also relying on my own network and I just happen to be fortunate enough to be in a group where we're constantly correcting one another and that's the thing about science. Science actually doesn't hold any belief uh, as sacred. Every belief is open to revision and criticism, and every single paper I've ever done as a scientist will eventually be proven wrong in some way. Mm-hmm. Someone will come along and say I wasn't thinking about it quite the right way, or there's a better way to look at it. And so, um, but it might be the best understanding we have now. And it might be still re- solid, but not—it's obviously not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, if you belong to say a religious group, certain beliefs are dogmatic, and you're not allowed to question them. Mm-hmm. And so those types of belief systems um, can lead you astray. And the more committed you are to the belief system, the more you can be led astray on certain beliefs. And so what we, what our book stresses is the need to find and fulfill belonging needs by belonging to groups that are accurate, and that's gonna make you accurate. And the examples we use are like cults, but we also find this in organizations. So one of the classic cases, there's a, a great paper on this, uh, looking at cult psychology within Enron, and so Enron is one of like the biggest corporate disasters in American history. And when you look at like the culture of the leaders and and how people were expected to you know uh, kind of mimic everything the leaders believed, um, what you saw in there was actually almost identical to what you see in in cults. Mm-hmm. And so um, eventually, it led them in this terrible direction. And you know they had this culture basically of groupthink. And so uh, we think that this is a broad idea. This doesn't just apply to politics. This doesn't just apply to cults. It applies to all kinds of groups mm-hmm. that that we'd be part of in our life. This is like um,
0: this is a really bold thing, but I don't I don't know. I feel like maybe everyone's catching up to it in the zeitgeist. The idea, uh, for social media, like social media is such a. a If Marshall McLuhan was alive, like that'd be—you know what I mean? It's the next thing that's going to change everything about how we relate to ourselves. And social media has to be resolved and figured out if we're going to get on the spaceships and go to other planets. Because like it's it's a thing that was way more disruptive than we expected it to be. But I think that also helped us understand that like um, what so like social psychology is what you're stating and the idea that groupiness and being a social primate is the core part that everything else... It's the nucleus of everything else that, that that we think, feel, and do that surrounds this base, drive, and motivation. And if you are into motivated reasoning, which is what I mostly talk and write about, motivated reasoning in one way or another, the the fundamental motivation above all others or beneath all others, or whichever metaphorical direction yeah. you want to take it, um, seems to be this desire to be a good member of your group.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And... Uh, so much so that, like, I, I often use, like, Jonestown as an example, but, like, the thing that blew me away about Jonestown is they sacrifice themselves to the group, even though, by doing, if they all do it, no group. So, so Yeah. Cause, so whatever algorithm is playing itself out, is placing hierarchically, be a good member above everything else to the point that it doesn't even care what the output is if it, if it results in the destruction of the group in a strange way. Distra- <laughs> you know, a good place in where you're thinking and all this.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that identity allows you to do when you identify and you're a committed member of a group is make sacrifices for the group. And so those can be little sacrifices, like if we all pull our money together, we can get something that's much better than what any of us could have done. Mm -hmm. Or if we all chip in, we can like build a rocket and go to the moon Mm -hmm. and do something that no other humans have ever done. And so we have these amazing things that happen by our capacity to cooperate and, and, you know, all work together to accomplish something. Um, but sacrifice also leads us to you know, put our lives at risk. And so you see this during military conflicts all the time. People will put their life at risk for their country. Well, what is a country? A country is uh, in many ways just an abstract idea. The, no- the notion of most of our national identities didn't exist until a couple hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And so even those things historically are radically new ideas that are kind of political compromises designed for, for certain political purposes. And yet we internalize them so deeply um, that they shape our behavior in all kinds of weird ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this can, again, can help us sacrifice, pull together, defend our nation from threats, and, and maybe you know we would die, and so, you know, some distant future generation will have a better life mm-hmm. um, in in the name of our country. But you can see this go terribly awry in some cases. The example of of course is cults, and you can see it in all kinds of other instances as well, where they'll do it in such a way that they're not actually accomplishing anything that's going to persist after they've gone, and yeah. the group itself becomes extinct. It makes it seem very insect like.
0: In anyway. Yeah. but I guess that's only because it's in uh you uh your expertise is also in neuroscience, and so I mean like it just makes this, it makes me feel like a bio machine. Whenever I, if I'm committing myself to motivations and drives that eventually result in behaviors that are um, benefiting the group more than they are myself because the group is more important to my, in a a, a long-term natural selection kind of way. Mm -hmm. But of course I would be, otherwise I wouldn't even have these predilections. I think that's the biggest thing to try to get across to people. And you mentioned it earlier, is that when you start talking about group selection, it all slots in and makes sense. Like groups that had... These um, drives and motivations outcompeted other groups that did not. Yes. And so,
1: therefore, we have this now. Am I, yeah. am I saying the right thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, the analogy a lot of uh, other scientists have used—I'm not the first to think of it—is that we're a little bit like bees. Um, and so, bees, you know, operate—they have a hive mind, and they will make sacrifices to benefit the hive. Um, we're not completely like bees. Obviously, we're pretty radically different in a lot of ways. But we have a little bit of that instinct in us. And, and in fact. That's one of the things that separates us from other primates. That we are more social animals, more groupish than any other primate. And so that is something that's uh, very specific to humans at at the extent that we have it.
0: Here's the thing, though. I I feel like as a person in the 21st century, as a person who grew up in the Deep South, as a person who is in the United States, um, as a Westerner and all those things, I... Can feel a visceral reaction to thinking about myself as being influenced by groups, yeah. as being a groupy person. Uh, thinking about cliques and tribes and everything else that we use to describe all this, um, I feel an immediate pushback inside of me. Uh, but in the book, you say you talk about something that is so wild, which is to feel this urge to be individualistic is another form of conformity.
1: Yeah. He's about that. Okay, so. This is something we're, we're in America right now. We're in New York City as we're recording this podcast. You know, one of the most individualistic places in the world, and so there is really fascinating research showing that you know Americans see themselves more as individualists than other countries, say as like East Asian countries where they're more collectivistic. Um, but it turns out that that's part of our identity. So the more you identify as an American, the more individualistic you become because you have the group identity where individualism is a valued social norm. And so, when, a lot of the, one of the reasons we wrote this book is because there's a growing awareness that groups matter and that people identify with groups Mm -hmm. in all types of domains of life. You know, politically, racially, nationally. Um, what our book was, is trying to point out is that we're not yet thinking it in a deep enough way. And so once you actually read the science on this, you come to a bunch of different conclusions. And one of it, one of them is that first, the first step is kind of identifying with a group. But once you identify with it, The norms matter a great deal. Mm -hmm. And the norms can make you do things that kind of go against the way we think of tribalism or groups, Mm -hmm. which can make us, if the norms are about individualism, we'll act the more identified we become, the more individualistic we become. Mm -hmm. If the norms actually are are something that values dissent, then you'll have a spirited debate in every group meeting. Um, and so it, just because you identify the group, it doesn't automatically make you tribalistic. It doesn't necessarily make you um, prejudiced or discriminatory. It doesn't make you uh, you know, a mindless lemming or uh, someone who uh, abides by groupthink. Mm-hmm. Um, so another great example is uh, research showing that if you identify with a group that is egalitarian, you're actually less likely to discriminate against other groups. And so again, it's the groups that you identify with that matter a great deal. There isn't just this one identity. You may think of yourself as Jay or may think of myself as David
0: and I have this idea of if I have to fill out a profile like I'm in the Dungeons & Dragons, like I'm doing a and d thing of my character, I'll know exactly how to describe it, right? But you'd talk about these decades of research and research that you've done in which you can think of a
1: person as having many, many things. In other words, we contain multitudes. We can talk about that. Yeah. So the way that most people think of their identity is almost like a hero in a great epic narrative, right? Um That you know you have different chapters of your life, and you're kind of the same person, and you're just like evolving and dealing with challenges and trying to overcome them. And there's like a massive self-help literature that's like dedicated to this kind of thinking of like the heroic self that's over going to overcome these challenges, Um, if only you like dig down and like evaluate yourself and critically and build these skills. Um, the way our book comes at it is we basically challenge that notion of the self at, and we basically try to throw away this like Western notion of the self. <laughs> um, and we come at it and say, um, the, the quote that we use is from Walt Whitman that we contain multitudes, which is that we have multiple identities embedded within each of us. And so well, one of the things I encourage your listeners to do, and, and we did this for ourselves, is like um, it's a 20 questions task. And so ask, say to yourself, I am blank. And fill that, do that 20 different times. And so for me, it's like, I am a professor. I am Canadian. I am a father. um, I am a friend. um, I, I, you know, I am a New Yorker. And so you can go through this list and look at them. And a lot of these are about your identities in different groups. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm thinking about myself as a New Yorker right now, because we've brought it up a few times. There's a set of assumptions and norms that come with what it means to be a New Yorker. It means like walking really fast on the sidewalk, you know, uh, being quick to debate people. It's kind of like a lively, energetic type of identity that I have. Um, But when I'm watching like, uh, you know, the Olympics, I'm thinking about myself as a Canadian. And I remember sitting here in my apartment in New York, watching the gold medal hockey game a few years ago, and Canada won in overtime, or maybe it was like close to the end of the game. They scored this amazing goal one, and I was ready to, like, run down Broadway. If I had had a Canadian flag, I would have run down screaming, like, by myself, because to a Canadian winning a hockey uh, gold medal is, like, the biggest thing. That's what Canadians care about. Most yeah, other yeah. countries could care less about that, right? It's completely <laughs> meaningless. Um, or when I go to work, I'm a professor, and I'm thinking, like, critically and focusing on science, and I'm being super skeptical. Um, when I come home, I'm a father, and I have, like, my kids... And I'm trying to focus on them and I try to put my my phone away, you know, if I can. Um, And I have a different set of roles and I have to like be, you know, get them food. I have to be like a bit of a disciplinarian to make sure they get to bed on time and get a bath. And so a difference when you have an identity, you have these norms, these different goals, and often this different set of behaviors that happen. And so I think a lot of the issues around identity are um, what type of identity do we want to have? For most of our life. Um, and then what type of norms and behaviors do we want to attach to it? And we get to choose. We're, you know, we're not complete victims of our circumstance. Um, certainly when I walk into my apartment, it activates my father identity. Um, but I get to decide what kind of father I want to be. Um, or I can decide that I don't want to be a New Yorker. So even if I live in New York, I can ultimately decide if that's like a toxic identity or something like yeah. that. And so we do have, uh, we are kind of susceptible to these forces in the, in our situations. And we think of them kind of like a gravitational force, kind of guiding you towards different identities. Yeah. And it's oftentimes you're not aware of it. It's like when we walk through the world, we're not thinking about gravity, right? In fact, How many hundreds of years was it before Isaac Newton realized that gravity exists? And it was acting on all of us, you know, thousands and millions of people until somebody realized, oh my goodness, this force is operating on all of us all the time. And so we think of social groups doing that to us all the time and we're not aware of it. Um, but, but part of our goal here is to make people aware of it so that they have more agency in navigating what identities do they want to have? what role do they want to have in the group? Mm-hmm. You know because we can be leaders and entrepreneurs and shape the norms of the groups we have and guide them in ways that we think are healthier mm-hmm. um, so that's kind of the way that we think of the self
0: yeah you know you um, if gravity is, is uh, stronger on, on one planet than another, then you'll slowly like form a different body in yep. relation to it the it was so odd to think that if I moved to a different place that I was, my, my beliefs might start my attitudes might are going to be altered. By the spell that is cast by that place, that's like an enchanted forest, and it starts to drive you mad. But what's happening is my daily interactions with hundreds of human beings slowly but surely tweaking my knobs and changing me over time.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think of the same way because I grew up in a small town of 2,000 people.
0: Yeah, I, was, I was saying. Yeah,
1: in northern Alberta, we, we didn't have even a radio station. Um, you know, I had to drive an hour to go to the movie theater if you, if you wanted to have, like, by the time I got old enough to drive and wanted to go on a date. On a Friday night, you had to, like, get permission for your parents to take the car to an hour away to another town. So very isolated. And my mom it regularly reminds me, like, as I've moved out of that environment um, and, you know, got moved to get my education and then now working at, in New York, she often, like, when I see her, will remind me, like, don't forget who you are. Mm. Um, and it's a big, important thing for her that I don't lose that identity that I had as this like small town person with a set of values that I grew up with. Um, Mm. and so that's something that people who move away, I was also like a first generation college graduate. And so,
0: so
1: so, yeah. And so you move out of that and you get exposed to different things and it it does feel like a different world. And I've often felt like a foreigner in a strange land just with moving within different circles that I've been in. And I, it always kind of like puzzles me to, to be in these situations and try to navigate them. But it also pulls you away a little bit from who you are. And I think your friends and family back home, if you've changed a lot in your life or moved through different worlds or different places, um, urban rural is a big divide, a big part of people's Huge. identity. And so they see that in you um, and they're constantly like my old friends, like testing me. All the time, you know? <laughs> For when I went to college, it was college boy, and I'd come back, and, and so it was like, they wanna make sure that you're still you, and that you're still gonna slide back into yeah. that old identity you had and the role you had in those groups. Yeah, I,
0: I remember reading that phrase in some paper, like, the social network reaffirmed its, uh, reasserted its influence, and that freaked me out, the idea that yeah. the social network is, is continuously, perpetually influencing your thoughts, feelings, behaviors.
1: And I I just want to say, like, the way we often describe someone who shifts in different situations is a hypocrite. Yeah. You know? But we think of that much more generously. It's that, like, again, the Walt Whitman quote, you contain multitudes. People just need to deal with that a little bit, you know? (laughs) As long as you're not doing something deeply unethical or immoral, is that you can have different identities and different roles and and have different preferences in different situations, and yeah. that's totally normal. It seems, uh,
0: <laughs> that's our great gift. That's our great power.
1: Yeah. it gift
0: makes us adaptive. You were talking about we have these mini-selves, let's say father, Canadian, uh, man, uh, New Yorker, these, um, you know, person who owns a virtual reality headset. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's my son. <laughs> <laughs> you put all those things together, you can also group them into categories, and psychology has has at least three categories related to self. You talk about them in the book, the individual self,
1: the relational self, and the collective self. What are those three things? Yeah, so we have a sense of ourselves as an individual operating on the world. You know, me, Jay, in this interview with you as an autonomous unit walking through the world. I have a, relation, a relational self with my partner, uh, Tessa. Who you've met. Yeah. Um, and so we, I see us as like a unit when we plan vacations together or like are negotiating what we're going to have for dinner or things like that. You're thinking of yourself as a unit, as us. We have to come to some compromise to keep the relationship happy and healthy.
0: Because there might be things you agree or disagree on or you
1: yeah. have uh, different tastes or, or yeah. values maybe slightly. Yeah, we're two individuals with different individual preferences and identities and backgrounds. But we also think of ourselves as, you know, how do we want to tackle this thing? Mm-hmm. Do we want to go to that party we got invited to on front? Friday night, or we want to wait until like, everybody's vaccinated before we say yes to that. Um, and, and then we have a collective self. And so that might be like if I go to a baseball game at Yankee Stadium, um, I'm a Blue Jays fan, of course, because I'm from Canada, but if I see somebody else with a Blue Jays uh, jersey or t-shirt or hat and the, and the team is doing well, I'm going to give them a high five, even though they're a complete stranger that I'm never going to see or interact with again. And so all of these things are true within all of us all the time and it's just, depending on the moment in the situation, whether I'm thinking about my own goals, my relationship goals, or my goals of my collective identity. So
0: much of this goes back to goals and motivations. I don't, uh, the idea that that in different situations you'll be motivated differently, or that you have base goals and motivations and that motivated reason, like, just the idea that when you you look at a, a piece of information and you reason your way through it, or I have an argument or a justification I want to present to you, that I will reason my way through it, the idea that we'll be motivated in some way is an alien concept still if you haven't been like inundated by psychological research, the idea that um, if I'm thinking of my individual self, different motivations will come into play. Relational self, collective self. Like if you think to yourself, I am a, I am tall, like mm-hmm. uh, versus uh, I am uh, a, a heavy metal fan, versus uh, I am an American, uh, I I am a United States citizen. Right. These all come with different they activate completely different complexes of goals and motivations. And what bound these together to me was that all these traits are comparative. And you talked about that in the book. You can't be tall unless you are tall in relation to something that is not yeah. tall. You cannot you cannot be an American citizen unless there are other people who are not that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a weird thing to feel when you realize that all this is comparative. What do you think that, how, how do you think that plays into the whole feeling of being a self and having a group? identity?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- this is something that happens to us when we travel. And so, you might not think of yourself, you know, I might not think of myself, I remember my first ever trip I went to Europe as a high schooler. It was our high school went allowed some kids to go on a trip. We fundraised all year to get the money to go on this trip. And I remember being in uh, Venice, you know, one of the most world, beautiful places in the world. I walk into a McDonald's, you know, the dumbest... You know, I'm like here in this amazing place. I'm the world's best food, but I'm like a Canadian teenager. So I'm like, oh, McDonald's. I can go like get a get a hamburger. I walk in. I'm in line, and I'm wearing a shirt that had a maple leaf on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like the Toronto Maple Leafs hockey team or something. And this uh, teenage girl comes up to me, and just starts talking to me all of a sudden in English. You know, in the middle of Italy, and she had seen the leaf, and she was Canadian, and immediately she probably would have never come up and talked to me if I was in a McDonald's in Canada, right? Right. Because, but the moment we're in Italy and everybody else around us is talking a foreign language and we feel lost, even if she was like from halfway across the country in Canada, being in that different environment made us think of ourselves as Canadians and she saw that she could like connect with me and start talking to me immediately. And it, so it, we striked up this conversation, had dinner, spent the rest of the day hanging out. Uh, and it all was triggered because in that situation, that identity made us feel like we were close together. Uh, and safe and comfortable with one another in a way that it wouldn't have if we were like in downtown Toronto or something like that.
0: You just gave me a beautiful way to segue back to the the beginning so I can work my way through this, (laughs) your book in the order that you wrote it. I love that you said this. This helps me understand this so much better. You said 50 people on, this is from your book, 50 people on an airplane, even 150, not a group. Not to a group, not to a a psychologist like yourself who studies groups. Uh, Social psychologists wouldn't see that as a group. Um, they're a collection of people who share the same air for a minute, maybe the same, and this is your words, unappetizing food options. <laughs> so why would, but you said, but the flight attendants are a group. So what? why would that be so? What do you mean when you say that I'm on an airplane and I've got 50 other people around me? We're not a group, but the flight attendants are. What do you mean?
1: Yeah, so when you walk onto an airplane, you have your ticket as an individual, or maybe as a couple if you're going on a vacation or family. Um, but you're not really interacting with anybody else on the flight for the most part there's a bunch of individuals all on their own goal to get there for whatever reason for business pleasure or a connecting flight that they're taking and um you don't dress alike you don't have any shared goals and purpose or symbols of identity okay. the the crew including the the people who are serving you the people who are flying uh the pilots have an identity they all work say for like Delta or Southwest Airlines, and they're all wearing the same clothes with the same colors. They have the same goals. Um, they're all working in unison in a coordinated way. Um, and one thing we talk about in our, in our, uh, book is this amazing study where we show that all can change. And so we, we found this, I, this is my favorite, one of my favorite papers of all time. I found this paper where this, um, woman who is a social worker was part of a hijacking in the 70s. And, her plane was hijacked and taken to another country, and it was a incredibly horrific experience. And then she wrote a paper about how group dynamics changed mm-hmm. the moment that you're all in it together, mm-hmm. that you're all undergoing this traumatic, unique circumstance where you're suddenly victims of a hijacking. You have a sense of solidarity and purpose, mm-hmm. and so she talked about how they suddenly all started. You know, at first there was tension because like they were trying to ration food and things were tense. Um, but and there were subgroups, you know, in the plane of different people from different, like, had different passports and different backgrounds. Um, but they started suddenly started to create group identities of this group of passengers who otherwise would have never talked to one another, never mm-hmm. saw themselves uh, as as a unit. And so that can happen really quickly under all kinds of circumstances that There's people come together under powerful situations. Momentary solidarity,
0: as you put it. Yeah, and that's so true. I've been. On, I think anyone who's flown has experienced this, or if, if you've been on the subway or anything like that, like. Something weird happens and the people in your immediate vicinity all look to each other to think yeah. what to do. And if everybody kinda of laughs at the thing or, or, or says, Not you know, not today, do it. Or on an airplane if like it's very turbulent and we have a tiny conversation. Or somebody on the airplane is like ridiculous, they're like a total asshole and everybody's like mm-hmm. what an asshole and then like you just become you from that point forward in the flight, you might actually have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I know in very long flights, whenever the food comes out, everybody turns back into being like eight years old and they, they get the yeah. little cafeteria trays. So or are all yeah. like, happy. <laughs> and then, like, if, if, somebody, if, you, if anybody has ever said, Do you, uh, I don't want this, you can have it to any food item ever, all of a sudden that person is now in my group and we're going to fight yeah. to death together. <laughs> <laughs> like, and now we take a break from our episode for a word from our sponsors. And now we return to our program. If we back into the research as to how this can happen so quickly, you get to Tajville. And um, if you could talk a little bit about what happened with Tajville, Tajville created a social vacuum. Why did he create this and what did he discover when he did so?
1: Yeah, so Dominic and I think that the studies on what, what are called minimal groups might be the most important experiment in the history of social science. This is our personal opinion. Um, So Taj Fell was a researcher, social psychologist back in the 60s and 70s, and he was trying to understand what triggered group conflict and discrimination. And when groups are in conflict, and you can see this around the world, these intractable conflicts between countries and religious groups, um, they have a long history of grievances, there's often violence. they're sometimes fighting over sacred land or borders. There are stereotypes they have about each group. Um, sometimes they're fighting over resources as well, not just land, but jobs, money. And so there's so much going on that it's impossible to know what's causing what, mm-hmm. And then how would you intervene? Mm-hmm. So Tajra has a great idea to basically create like a, a control condition for a group conflict. Like, let's get rid of every single thing that we might think be, might be causing conflict. And then we'll slowly add one thing in at a time and figure out what triggers it. And so he created this condition where there was just simply, he flipped a coin and essentially created two groups over a simple arbitrary distinction. Like, it was-
0: like, do you like, here's a bunch of paintings, which one do you like best? Or here's some dots on a page, how many are
1: you? Yeah, not. yeah, so one... No one, matter what your
0: answer, is. you get grouped into one group or the other.
1: Yeah, yeah, he had, one study had people estimate the number of dots on a, on a page, and then he just gave them false feedback and told them either they're an overestimator or an underestimator. Most of us don't care right. about being an overestimator or underestimator dots, and in fact, he didn't even give people accurate feedback. So let's say you were an overestimator, half the time he would have told you an underestimator, right. anyways. Um, so your skill at estimating dots had nothing to do with this. And then he gave them a decision about allocating money to other overestimators or underestimators. And they had a bunch of decisions over time with different, in, basically underestimators or overestimators. So these were essentially people who were part of your in-group. So if you were an overestimator, they were an overestimator, maybe um, part of your in-group. If you're an overestimator, they're an under underestimator. Then they'd be an outgroup member. Mm-hmm. And what he found is, and he wasn't, I don't think, expecting to find discrimination at that stage. He was going to then layer on, well, let's tell you some stereotypes about those mm-hmm. nefarious underestimators, right. or let's have you battle over some scarce resource.
0: He had stripped everything down to what he felt was like this yeah. is just a simple you're different from this person or you're same. Yeah, as person.
1: and he didn't even let them interact with the other groups, and so they just learned who they were and they saw these kind of anonymous decisions. And they also, ha- he also had it so that like those people weren't going to find out or impact your outcomes at all. So if you gave a, a fellow an in-group member a bunch of money, they wouldn't be able to give you money back in the future. Um, and so it was stripped of everything that normally happens in groups, including just knowledge of who the other person is or their knowledge of who you are. And what he found is that they discriminated. <laughs> just these trivial, minimal groups determined by a flip of a coin they started to give more money to the in-group than the out-group. Um, and in fact, if they had lots of different options about how much money to allocate to each person, it wasn't just about maximizing the amount of money they gave to the in-group. It was about maximizing the difference that they gave to the in-group and out-group. It's, more, I have to get, I don't know I'm talking over you, but it's so exciting
0: to be. The <laughs> idea that like, it isn't just important that I get more than they do, it's important that they that we have a disparity as wide as I can make it. Even yes. if that
1: causes me to have less than I could have had otherwise. Yep. That's the part that freaks me out, go ahead. Abra. Yeah, and so it's not just about maximizing in-group gains, it's about maximizing the distinctiveness or difference between the two groups. Um, and so it was a shocking finding because that was the condition where they didn't expect to find anything. That was the control condition. And so since then, you know, there have been hundreds of studies with these minimal groups in all kinds of different ways. And, This is what i started running as a graduate student by flipping a coin and putting people in groups and uh this was work with with dominic and and my my advisor will cunningham and we found that if you just flip a coin and put people in a group and we would have you know we'd call them the lions or the tigers or the red team or the blue team didn't matter what you call them and then you show them a bunch of individuals from the in group and out group and we try to do use it to get rid of racial bias and so you'd be assigned to a group that was perfectly mixed in race, black and white faces. And what we found is that the moment you're part of an in-group, your implicit biases or preferences that normally are based on race go away. You suddenly feel positive to everybody who's part of your in-group. Um, and we asked people who they might want to be friends with. And they would say, that, oh, I want to be friends with people who are in my in-group, even though they never met these people. Um, we also put them in a scanner and measured their brain activation. And we find that a lot of the effects of race that you typically see are not there. Instead, what you see is preferences and paying more attention to in-group members. Um, and so, it's, wow. it's whatever group matters to us right now seems to be driving our judgments, uh, how we're thinking about other people, uh, more than things that are you know, very visually clear like racial you know, racial group membership. Yeah. Suddenly it does not seem to be important if, you're, if, you're, if you believe that you're all part of the same group.
0: And this is a key, as you said, that right now, because at least yeah. is the next stage of this chain of processing I'm thinking about here, because uh, you basically say what's, if you strip everything away from a person what's left is their social identity Like we, it's, it's like we, if we don't feel a social identity we look, we try to establish one as quickly as possible it's like we need that one thing satisfied before we can feel like we can operate with any kind of safety in the world but once that happens you become motivated that's the thing that blows my mind You, I'm uh, quoting and paraphrasing a little bit here uh, you, you're motivated to possess an identity that has meaning and value and so um, as soon as that happens, you start allocating resources to the in-group and to the out-group, uh, which in a way ensures that that identity is a positive and distinct one. And then you immediately start pursuing group interest. Like, so that it, it starts instinctually and unbidden and you have no control over this. It just happens to you. Um, and it's not so much that you hate the other group, as that you just really, really love your group. If you could tell yeah. a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so so we looked uh, many, many studies and we would ask them, how much do you like these Group members, how much do you like the out-group members? Who do you want to be friends with? Um, measuring who they paid attention to and remembered. And what we found over and over and over again is it really, being part of a group, that kind of first stage that happens very quickly, is really about in-group love, that you just start feeling positive towards all these members of the group. You pay more attention to them. You start to see them as individuals and stop seeing them just kind of as an anomalous blob. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you don't yet have any reason to dislike the out-group. Um, So it's not until you layer in, we'll go back to Tauschfeld's original idea, it's not really until you layer in, you know, conflict over resources and uh, moral violations that you really start to have disdain for an out So you get a sense of
0: conflict over anything, and all of a sudden it goes from, I love this group of men, to us versus them, is activated right off the bat. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so... This is what I, you talk about Daniel Dennett had this great quote, I actually wrote it down in my, in another notebook, I liked it so much, you said that it's, the self is the center of our narrative gravity,
1: yeah.
0: uh, but this is the word, this is the thing that made me most excited about your book, I know this is strange, I know you probably have all these other things in the book that you are excited about, for me personally, it was, because this was revelatory to me, it was an epiphanous thing, is that, um, yes, that's true you say, yes, that our self is the center of gravity, and you Put all this work in that we've just been describing that yourself is a group phenomenon type thing because you have to, you the self as a member of a group. Your identity is that which identifies you as this group and not the other. But um, our sense of self, this gravitational center, does not stay in the same place. It moves about, shifting between different aspects of our identity. And we already talked about that a little bit. But I think what um, becomes amazing, what's amazing to me is you, you say in the book, I becomes we, me becomes us, mine becomes our in relation to the identity that was salient in the moment. You were saying, like, whatever it is right now. All these different things that we are, when we, especially in a study where you say, I want you to think very much about the fact that you are this kind of person, that now becomes the identity that motivates your subsequent thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. I think that's insane. (laughs) But you (laughs) talk about this one study that illustrates this, the allocation task for social value orientation. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so this is, I think, one of the, you know... there's lots of studies like this, but this was a study that kind of was a revelation for me. Um, so we know that selfish people, you know, in a situation where they can keep money or give to the group will tend to grab the money for themselves. And so there's ways to measure this selfishness called the social value orientation, that some people are what are called pro-selfs. They try to maximize their own gains. And, and people listening, you'll, you'll know if you're one of those people. Yeah, yeah. And, and, or you'll know if one of your friends are that they always like skip when the bill comes around. Um, I'm going to get
0: mine yeah. before you get yours. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if we split, if we have to split something, I'm going to take a little more than you. Yeah. I'm not going to be right down the middle. This yeah. is a person who's more pro-self.
1: Yeah, they're trying to just maximize their own gains. And there's, you know, some people have a theory that like everybody deep down is, is pro-self. Um, and, but you can measure this. And then there's another uh, uh, type of person who's more communally oriented. They're a pro-social. That they try to like benefit everybody in the group before they get theirs. These are the people who like at a buffet eat last, you know, or when dinner's served, they take theirs last. Um, and so there's different types of people in the world when they're thinking about how they would, you know, what their kind of default is for interacting with others. Um, what this study found is that, you know, in a, in a game where you had some resources and you had to allocate some to yourself and some to the rest of the group, the pro-self people gave more to themselves and the pro-social people gave more to the group on average. Um, and so that's kind of the control condition. These two different types of people do pretty much exactly what you'd predict. Um, but then they had a condition where they activated a shared identity for these individuals. And that's where things changed. Um, so when your sense of self was changed from me to we, because you were thinking of yourself, say, as like a New Yorker, or as an American, or uh, whatever it is that matters to you. Um, when that type of self is activated, Even the people who were normally very self-interested suddenly become self-interested, but their their sense of self is we. And so they suddenly try to maximize the gains for the whole group. And so they're willing to take sacrifices to the self um, to maximize the group. And if you've ever played sports, I grew up playing a lot of sports, there are often these people who, you know, you love to have them on your team, but you hate to play against them because they will do anything to win. And so those type of people who do anything to win when they're thinking about themselves are being really selfish. But when you put them on a team, they're the people who are going to great lengths and enormous sacrifices to help the team win. And, and you saw, it plays out in the games, like depending on the identity you've activated, the way they allocated resources
0: was so different. Like, the, some, like 90% of, um, this uh, people who had the pro-social orientation, 90% of the time they'd try to split it down the middle, basically. And people who had pro-self motivations would be about half the time they would do that. But when they were at, when they were encouraged to think about themselves as a member of a group, they would go to up to 79% of the time they would split down the middle again because uh, it comes down to your behavior changes depending on the identity that's activated because the motivations change because your motivations are now to that identity and everything Mm -hmm. that plays along with it. I feel like that's huge. I think everybody (laughs) should know that about themselves. So you have some studies that illustrate this. That sounds, that's kind of like inside baseball, high-minded, abstract. Here's some concrete things you talk about. The banker study, if you could talk
1: about that. Oh, goodness. Uh, um, There's this great study. It was run by uh, this this group of economists in Zurich. And uh, so Zurich is like one of the world's capitals of banking, right? And so they ran this study with bankers, got access to these bankers. And what they found is that Um, and we, and so think right now, I'll ask everybody listening to pause and think of what your stereotypes of a banker are, you know, these people in finance, um, are, do you trust them? Do you think they're honest or dishonest? (laughs) Um, the study looked at this issue and to try to find out are bankers dishonest or not. And what they found out is that when bankers were thinking about themselves through the lens of their banker identity, um, they were more dishonest. But when they were not thinking about it that way, they were no more honest or dishonest than the next person. Yeah. And so again, <laughs> it's partly because there's certain norms about what it means to be a banker and maximizing your income, I guess, that once those get activated for people, it makes them selfish. Um, but when those people go home and spend it with their family they, or their friends, they might be you know, just as likely to pick up the check or maybe even more likely when they take when they go for dinner with friends or family. Uh, but when they're at work, they might be like trying to just cut corners or whatever they can to maximize their gains. And so, again, is this hypocrisy? Are they a hypocrite because at home they're generous, but at work they're dishonest? Um, we, we make the case that it's not. It's just they have different identities that get activated different times, and there's different norms associated with those identities that guide them to act in different ways. This is a huge thing. It's like a venturian candidate. Like yeah. this identity is activated. Therefore, I shall. Here's one that,
0: that spoke to my heart. You did. You did a Southern food study. <laughs> uh, please tell me everything about the Southern food study. I got very excited when I read this.
1: Okay, so this was a study was uh, with my, my former PhD student, Leo Hackel, and one of the things we we well I noticed when I moved to the U.S. is there's big differences in uh, identity of Southerners, people who grew up in the South, uh, the Southern United States. Um, and also the food associated with the South is quite different. Mm-hmm. I remember I went to my first Southern conference and I had my, one of my first advisors told me, can you bring me back some grits? Yes. <laughs> that's like a core Southern food. I remember being at, at a conference, I think it was in Memphis and we went over for dinner and my friend was vegetarian. And he got a vegetarian platter and it was just like, everything was just like fried. It was like, <laughs> and, and, um, and so that's, and then of course the great barbecue, I guess, one well, my favorite part of the South. So anyways, um, we ran this study with Southerners, and we showed them some traditional Southern foods, you know, like collard greens, uh, grits, cheesy grits, and, you know, black-eyed peas is another one, and uh, like northern, just foods that are Northern or regular from the United States, you know, like pizza or something like that. And what we found is that Southerners liked the Southern foods more. Um, but then we ran a study where we took those Southerners and we primed them to think about their Southern identity or their individual identity. And so we had them write about like books that Southerners like, or movies that Southerners like versus like, let's say books or movies that they as an individual like. And what we found is that when we got them thinking about themselves as a Southerner, and they're thinking about all these things about the Southern culture and what Southern identity means, suddenly that's really when they started to really prefer those Southern foods. Um, as opposed to when they were just thinking of themselves as an individual, and so when you're walking around the world and trying to pick a restaurant to go to, um, what you're probably going to pick or what you might order if you're going to order in is going to be partly determined by what identity is active in your mind at that moment. Um, and so, so, and and we, I know, I imagine that this is partly why like certain restaurants try to create a really authentic, yeah. uh, you know, ambiance of the culture and to get people kind of in the mood where they're salivating over the foods associated with that culture. I mean.
0: You've got right here in front of us here, if, you're, if your identity as a banker is activated, you will be a little more cheaty. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if your uh, identity as an American is activated, you'll be more individualistic. If your uh, identity as a Southern American is activated, you will prefer grits over pizza. But in all of those studies, if your identity as something else is, is what's made salient, these are diminished or go away completely. And you've done more than that. You have a Swiss chocolate study uh, uh, where people who were reminded of their Swiss identity did not habituate to the smell of chocolate.
1: Yeah, they smelled chocolate as more intense. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but it didn't affect their smell of popcorn because popcorn's not part of the Swiss identity. I mean, that's a sensory <laughs> modality. That we're talking about, like, that,
0: feels like it can't, that can't possibly be so. This reminds me of when I was, uh, when I learned that um, a person who was tricked into thinking they had a high-calorie drink will yeah. produce less ghrelin in the in the, in the Their body will, will make them feel satiated yeah. because they believe they had something, right? And I just, uh, that shocked me the idea that my my belief, which feels abstract, which feels under my control, could affect yeah. something in my body that I could not control otherwise. But I remember asking a, a scientist who worked on that, how that could that be, and they were like, lift your arm. And there was their response, I was like, okay. He's like, you're acting my, myosin fibers in your muscle tissue. You don't know how that works. You don't know those exist. Mm. Yeah. It's okay that the that, that you, that <laughs> the, the conscious mind can control things. Yeah, like, don't, that, that this all relates to that to me. In that, but identity being a part of that chain, for some reason um, shocks and excites me. Uh,
1: especially the smelly shirt study. If you could, take oh, that, I'll, I'll move to the next. Level. So this was a study run in England. We tried to have studies from all over the world for our, to show just how broad identity is and how it operates. Um, there was, this was a great study. This, uh, the study, I think it was Steve Reicher was the, was the auth, lead author on this one. Um, they had, uh, one of their research assistants wear a shirt, the same shirt for like, I think it was like a week. And so imagine wearing the same shirt for a week. It gets rancid. It gets loaded with your sweat and your body odor. And then they sealed it in like this airtight container. They brought in this shirt and then they had participants come in and they had to, uh, part of their role in the experiment, this was not an experiment I'd want to be in, is like open this container, this airtight container, like smell this shirt. And like right, basically they measured how disgusting people uh, thought this shirt was. And what they found is that um, in this particular study, they had, I, I'm trying to remember the specific universities that were involved, but they had this shirt. They told people uh, in one of the studies that the shirt was... Um, part of, uh, from a student from their own university or a rival university. And what they found was that when the, st- when the shirt was from, you thought that the stinky shirt you were smelling was from your own university, from a student from your own university. You didn't find it nearly as disgusting as when you thought the stinky shirt was from a, a student from a rival university. And so our feelings of visceral disgust to something, at, like a rancid shirt, um, are determined... By whether it's a group that we feel disdain or disgust towards, that is and so our reactions and, and you see this this is a form of a common form of prejudice towards like immigrants or outgroups. People will complain about the smell of certain groups or the smell of the food of certain groups um, and, and that's I think often woven into a form of discrimination is that they just don't like the group, and so they're interpreting the smell as disgusting, whereas if you just told them the smell that exact probably gave them the exact same smell and told them it was from. A group that they liked or their in group, they probably wouldn't have nearly the negative That's reaction. That reminds
0: the of that the cheese study. Oh man, I, I used to use that in my lectures because you tell people it's either body odor or cheese, yeah. and they will describe it as delicious or disgusting. Yeah, I don't know why this blows my mind, <laughs> but it does. I don't. I think I, in some part of me, I don't want to accept it. I want to feel like I'm experiencing the world a one to one as it is. But it's not possible, and you yeah. use the term lens as that as the chapter that talks about this because the. The focus of this chapter is that your senses, your raw senses are affected by your identity and your yeah. identity is a group phenomenon. Uh, so the groups to which you belong affect the way you actually create reality itself. Your subjective yeah. reality is affected by the groups to which you belong. How do you feel about
1: that? Yeah, so, so the metaphor w- <laughs> we use uh, that I think make, helps make sense of this is like a, a lens. So when you put on your glasses, right now I'm wearing glasses and they have a clear lens, and I like to think that I'm seeing the world as it is. We think that we're walking through the world with glasses with like a clear lens that we just see things as they are. Um, in reality, what's happening is our identities are acting as filters. And so, uh, when you wear one identity, it's as if you're wearing like a shady yellow lens, and the world looks a little bit different. Another identity, it's like a dark brown lens, and so. As you're activating different identities, it's as if you're wearing, like, sunglasses of different lenses. Um, we always assume we're seeing it through the clear lens, but in reality, it's shading the things in some way. And so uh, what's happening is it's not completely changing how we see the world. You know, we see a wall in front of us. Uh, we know how to walk down the stairs so we don't fall down. Um, but it's especially affecting how we see things that are ambiguous, and so you use the example of like, if you smell something and it could be interpreted as cheese or could be interpreted as body odor, then your belief is going to change how you're interpreting that ambiguous thing. So I think that a lot of things, especially this comes in with politics and, and social judgments of how you judge people, uh, are more like a blot. You know, it's a Rorschach test. And so, this is uh, identities helping us make sense of these ink blots that we see in the news, that we see on TV, that we're listening to uh, when we're deciding where to go for dinner. There's not really a clear, objective reality about whether a food's good or not. It's inter- it's interpretive, and so this is where identity plays a big role. Is when things are ambiguous or interpretive, like an ink blot, it's helping us make sense of what we're seeing there.
0: Okay, there are. Um, you use the example of. Uh, one of the landmark studies by Leon Festinger, the, the,
1: um, When Prophecy Fails. But relate that to your book and to what you're talking about here. So, yeah, I've been become, in the last four or five years, very interested in how people update their beliefs. And when people are misled, um, as a scientist, my goal is to constantly be getting new information, updating my beliefs as I see new paper, new evidence, read a new story. Um, but what what occurs to me is that people, especially people who are highly identified with a group, especially like a political group, or uh, you mentioned like a cult, mm-hmm. um, can be very resistant to updating their beliefs for for lots of reasons. And so the classic Fessinger study was when he went into the cult. Um, I forget what they were called, the Seekers. Seekers. The Seekers. Yeah. Yes. And so he was reading the newspaper one day, saw that they had there was a prophecy the world was going to end, mm-hmm. and of course he knew that the world wasn't going to end, or at least Felt pretty confident about it, and he wanted to see what would happen when they were confronted with a reality that was in contradiction with the prophecy.
0: It's a perfect setup. We, they say that the the earth is going to end on this day. He suspects it will not, and he wants to see what how they will react to it.
1: Yes, and this woman had been getting like me- the the leader of the cult had been getting messages from like these alien beings who were sending telling her what was going to happen and when the flood was going to come. It was going to come on midnight. They had this. She knew the day. She told the believers they're all in this house. Uh, you know, counting down the minutes till midnight when the when the world was going to end and then like an alien ship was going to come down and rescue like the true believers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, midnight strikes, everybody's sitting quietly in this room staring at each other, including the researchers who had pretended to be cult members. And um, no one like says a thing, you know, and then it's 12.05 and people are starting to panic, right? Because the aliens hadn't come. <laughs> and, you know, 12.10. And at that point, I think somebody uh, realized the clock was wrong. The clock in the other room you know, it was about 15 minutes behind. And that must be the right clock. That, so the aliens were, were, you know, the prophecy wasn't wrong. <laughs> so look, so they immediately looked for evidence in the house that the prophecy wasn't wrong. They went to the other room. Um, they're watching that clock. And then, of course, it blows past midnight. It, it's getting late. I think at some point in the middle of the night, like one or two in the morning, someone's sobbing. Um, and then in the, later in the middle of the night, uh, the, the woman, I think it was named Dorothy Keach, if I'm remembering her name correctly. Um, or Dorothy Martin. Anyways, so she gets a message from the, the aliens mm. that their faith had saved the world. And so yeah. what, do you, what do you do at that moment? You know, it's the middle of the night. In this, you're in this cult. You've given away all your belongings. Your friends probably have cut you off, um, and family members. Um, and you have a moment there where you can update your beliefs that clearly this core premise and belief of this cult was wrong, proven wrong, it had a clear prediction. The prediction was falsified. Do you decide this cult, this, the woman who's leading this cult or this, this whole belief system is wrong? I'm just going to leave this behind. This was a fun few months. I'm going like to go back and try to get my whole job back.
0: i take a mulligan on
1: this. Yeah, I'm going to take a mulligan. <laughs> we all make mistakes. And do you go back to your old life or do you double down? Right. And, and the, the reason Fessinger wanted to study it, he was the guy who invented cognitive dissonance theory. And he thought that at that moment... You're going to just be under so much cognitive dissonance and anxiety and stress around this because you're so heavily invested in the cult, but, it, but then you have to deal with this fact that the cult made a terribly wrong prediction is probably false. Um, what are you going to do? Are you going to update your belief? Which should be pretty easy, but in this case it's hard because you're going to have to admit that you were wrong with all your family and friends. You've lost a bunch of time and, and resources. Um, or are you going to double down and try to rationalize this belief and justify it? And he found that most people... Uh, rationalized it. And in fact, they became even more devout as cult members. They started proselytizing and telling the world that their beliefs had like, saved them from this massive flood. So this is definitely uh, like a really classic case of true believers, like hardcore believers in this case, confronted with a fact that didn't fit their reality and what they do. And they, in this case, they affirm it. And one of the things that Fessinger pointed out that was key, well, probably two things. One is the degree of commitment to the identity group mm-hmm. mattered a lot mm-hmm. in terms of Rationalizing dissonance and sticking with the cult the other thing that he identified as important was the social affirmation That if it was just probably one person who had to deal with a misprediction, it's easy to walk away from it But the moment you have another people a bunch of people in your group who are affirming the belief and rationalizing it for you um, It's easier to stick with the belief. This is Huge to me. Be. Okay, because
0: uh, anyone who's been following, and, and you know I've had a, many conversations with you about this, uh, because this is my absolute obsession, is uh, assimilation versus accommodation. When we are, do we fit the novel information to our existing model, or do we, accommodate, we create a new space, a new abstraction layer in the model to accommodate this new thing? In this case, you know, they're like, they could be like, this was bullshit, I'm out of here, or they can be like, oh yeah, well, they actually we saved the world, so this is actually, I was even more correct than I thought I was. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is actually an even, this is a really good decision to be here. I changed the world. I saved
1: the world. Um, and which one of those would you rather choose? It's- a belief system where you helped save the world, or the belief system where you are a complete fool for believing this <laughs> cult? Right, and you, but like, if you don't want to be eaten by a tiger, it like, feels like you'd want to be more
0: accurate. Mm-hmm. Then you would, then, then then you wouldn't want to believe something that you wouldn't want to be thrown in with a group like this who might get you killed. But your whole thesis of this book is like the most important thing in the hierarchy of our motivations and goals is being in a good group or being in a group period and hoping that that group is good. So it's going to supersede this other stuff. It's going to be a very strong motivation. And so you say this, and this is really good for me in my like obsessions, is that the key. This is frustrating from your book. The key to maintaining beliefs in the face of countervailing evidence is social support. Isolated believers can rarely withstand overwhelming evidence that provided by the failure of a prophecy. Um, there's another study that, that talks about this. The camping one is that. Do you do you, do you remember that? Is how you ended up that chapter where they asked people to like. Uh, oh yeah.
1: To, they did make some bets? <laughs> yeah. So 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 the the when prophecy fails is probably one of the most famous studies in social psychology, but it's just one small cult group. And, you know, it wasn't, they didn't have a lot of, like, scientific measures because they were trying to pretend to be cult leaders. Um, so we found another study where they looked at another doomsday cult. This was some economists who did this. And, um, they, they also had a control condition. I believe it was Seventh-day Adventists were the control condition. I'm trying to remember the details of the study. And they offered them, the, the doomsday cult was predicting the cult was going to end in a couple weeks. And the researchers, of course, economists use money to measure, do people really believe this? And so they offered them this opportunity to earn potentially hundreds of more dollars. You know, if if you just wait a couple of weeks, we'll give you that, or you'll just take a few dollars today. A
0: little marshmallow test.
1: Yeah, so it's totally like a, but it was like amped up. It's not like two marshmallows in, in a few weeks. It was like $500 in a few weeks or okay. like a few bucks now. Um, so yeah, so most people, any like, you know, financial advisor will tell you, wait a few weeks, get a few hundred dollars. Uh, you should definitely always do that from a financial perspective. Um, the only case probably where you shouldn't is if you don't think you're going to be around in a couple weeks. And so one religious group um, was a doomsday cult and the other was not. And they were, you know, in the same city, in the same neighborhood. And so the researchers were able to kind of control for a lot of factors that would normally differ between these uh, belief systems. And basically the, the control, control religious group, almost all of them, you know, decided, you know, to do the, they, they won the marshmallow test. They decided, I'm not going to take a few dollars today. I'm going to take the big money in a couple weeks. Um, and it was like, uh, they, you know, they had a gambling system that, you know, a dice was rolled to determine how much you essentially you'd get in a few weeks. Um, but the people who believed in the doomsday cult did not. Almost every single one of them they said, I'd rather take a few bucks now than wait a couple weeks and get a few hundred dollars, yeah. the potential for a few hundred dollars. there ain't going to be a few more weeks. Yeah, there ain't going to be a few more weeks. <laughs> yeah, they said, oh, you know, the world's ending in two weeks. Why would I, uh, there's no way I would take a few hundred dollars three weeks from now if the world's going to end in two weeks. So they essentially um, made this decision, which was extremely irrational from a classical economic perspective, um, but showed that they actually had a sincere belief that the world was going to end because they were willing to forego huge amounts of money um, because of their belief, mm-hmm. and so I thought that was a really nice study in that it was you know real economic stakes. These are true beliefs people have, and and you mentioned the Jonestown massacre. You know mm-hmm. people are ki- could kill themselves on mass in some of these situations, or the I was thinking like the the Manson cult. You know they committed murder and they ended up in prison a long time. So there's all these types of cult like scenarios, and then cult is like a Pejorative term, but you see this with all kinds of other large scale yeah. groups. You see this with political groups who make bad decisions, you know, countries that make bad decisions, companies that make bad decisions when they have the psychology that is uh, similar to what's going on in these cults.
0: Look, you know, uh, a guy put on, took off his shirt and put on bison horns and, <laughs> and tried to like steal Nancy Pelosi's laptop <sighs> based off of these motivations that uh, and it's not like he was going to rallies, it's not like he was uh, um, it's not like he was meeting up once a week and having a potluck with other bison horn dudes, like this came from purely from reading a bunch of stuff on the internet and having these things activated within them. Um, It's. I think it's very easy to point a finger and laugh at that, but what I would hope, and I think your work does this, is like that finger is pointed at you too I mean, we yeah. are human, these are things that human beings are prone to um, I often tell people like. Anybody can join a cult. It's it's you are know, lucky to have not had these twenty five things happening in a row and you're and have that context via surrounding you. That gravitational pull of that pulling you into it. Um and uh, speaking of the insurrection, like I noticed the cognitive dissonance thing could take place. Like when this when people started saying it was a false flag, I'm sure you saw the same thing. Because like I'm assuming they had two attitudes in their head. It's good to be a Trump supporter. Oh no, look what these Trump supporters did. Yeah. So is it wait, is it bad to be a Trump supporter? So the easy way out of it is to go, like, well, they just weren't Trump supporters. Yeah. It's basically saying, like, we saved the world, but with our prayers. Uh, if they're not Trump supporters, then it's are still okay to be a Trump supporter. So I now must believe that these people are uh, in Tifa or that it's a false flag operation. That's what I'm saying. We can now put them deeper into whatever conspiratorial thing they're in, and, and then, you know, and then the world. Ends. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is... The, 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 it, when you look at the, the how dissonance works, it's often easier just to rationalize an existing belief then, then leave a group, and and think of this politically. Like, if you're deeply committed to a group, um, let's say you're committed to a political group, means you have stickers on your car, you probably have a sign on your front yard, you might have a friend group that's based entirely on that political belief that you go to the same clubs together or events, um, and so for that group to kind of. Do something disastrous is is, is em- deeply embarrassing. It's horrifying. It's also hard for you to leave because you're going to leave behind that friend group. And this is something that happens with like smokers, for example. You know, it's really hard if you're a smoker and you're trying to quit because it's not just quitting smoking. It's stopping hanging out at the same places. It's it's the same groups that you hung out with where you all smoked together, um, and so. Part of it, it turns out, that people identify as a smoker in part because, and I had friends who were like smokers in, in when they were 14, 15 in school. These were my some of my best friends, and they would go hang out in smokers' corner at lunch and stuff like this. And they had this identity as kind of a rebel, and that's an identity. Then you get addicted to the nicotine, but also they have this identity and this friend group and this set of behaviors and habits. And so when you're quitting smoking, you're quitting all of those things. Like that's what we have to understand is some of the reasons some things are really addictive, whether it's a cult group, or political belief system, or a, a behavior we don't like, like yeah. smoking, it's heavily social. It's identity based. It's reinforced by the community, social community that we value.
0: That's a great place to like do the last part of our discussion. I'll, I'll end here uh, because. I mean, I think when we talk about this stuff, the question is – and by the way, anyone listening to this, uh, the book has a lot of stuff in it. I'm really only touching the very surface of, of all of this.
1: This is like the first third of the book. <laughs>
0: million, like you get into uh, a million other ideas. I, I think I took a note on it here. Uh, oh, yeah, you have uh, why people value certain social identities, what they what, – when it comes to symbols and objects and how those things are imbued with value. Bias, uh, implicit and explicit bias and how that's affected by group identity um How th- what happens in, in response to adversity? Collective action, dissent. Which uh your your uh, co-author. This is a big part of the, his research. Um, how people do. And I do want to talk about that. instead at a future date. Uh, I, I'll never get to it. In-
1: You've got to get Dominic in for an interview so about I'll dissent. I'll, I'll just ask yeah. Dominic about
0: that. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> the, the the dissent is a huge part of this, right? How how what ha- how do you change an organization from within? And what's going to happen in the future? In uh, for our conversation right here, I do want to just briefly talk about prescriptive advice because uh, there's always these questions about, um, well, what the fuck do we do about all this, right? So, yeah. The, the how do we prevent another insurrection, or at a, at a minimum, how do we make social media not a toxic soup of garbage life that we don't want to visit anymore? And something that comes up a lot is the idea of an echo chamber. And I was, in reading your book, I thought about how we often it's it's a the echo chamber idea is sort of a a different it's like almost a rebranding of the information deficit uh, idea We're like um, if you want to change people, you just give them better information or more access to information. And mm-hmm. as you even say in the book, that that rarely works out. There was a, um, we can get into it here. There was a study where the they a person uh, made it so that you received tweets from sources that were not within your political community. And what happened
1: there? This was a study by, I believe it was Chris Bale at uh, Duke University. And he made people look at tweets from the other political party for a period of days. And you might think, well, exposure to the other group is going to like make me more open-minded. I'm going to see their perspective. It's going to be a kumbaya moment, right? The marketplace, of ideas, doing what it do. the marketplace of ideas. Yeah. Like we, we value debate and, and you know, um, and you need to be exposed to other ideas if you're going to update your thinking. And what he found is that being exposed to the ideas from kind of hyper partisans from the other side didn't help. In fact, if anything, it backfired, uh, where people actually became more entrenched in their belief. Um, and so I, I do think that just exposure to the other side is not going to be the answer. Um, in, in, in this case, it was kind of like hyper-partisan content. Mm-hmm. Maybe an exposure to like a moderate from the other side or maybe the ideas from the other side but not from an extreme voice or something like that might mm-hmm. be more effective. And and we we have a study that shows some evidence that we just get identity out of the system and you can actually, people will listen to other ideas as long as they don't think it's coming from the other side. Um, So there are ways around it, but just simply having them listen to the other side doesn't work. And and I'll give you an example of this. So when I teach small classes, um, one thing I love to do for one day is have a debate. And I'll have half the, I'll, I'll flip a coin, just like the minimal groups, and I'll randomly assign one half of the class to be on one side of the debate and the other half to be on another side of the debate. And so I flip a coin for each person, and they have to form these two teams. Okay. And then they have to do—they have a couple weeks to do research and then they have, we have a debate format where they have to present the scientific evidence for their side. And what always happens is it's spirited, they do a great job digging up evidence and giving smart presentations and counterpoints. And then at the end I'll ask them, what do you believe? And the whole class always will just believe whatever side they defended.
0: <laughs>
1: and it is, I actually had them do this with a backfire effect. I had a debate one last time I taught about whether the backfire effect is real or not. Um, whether you have a backfire and get more entrenched in your ideas when you hear the other side. Um, or when you get a fact check. And the side that was ran, the team that was randomly assigned to argue in favor of the backfire effect by the end of the debate all believed it and the other side uh, that was assigned to argue that the backfire effect isn't really that strong or doesn't really exist um, all believed it didn't exist. <laughs> and so it was just identity determined their belief even about this uh, scientific ostensibly like a factual debate where there's, I know you've had multiple podcasts on it. There's oh, yes, been sir. tons of articles on it. Yes. And I'm studying it in my lab. And it's like, there's tons of data on this. But but their belief was determined by whatever I whatever minimal group I randomly assigned them to by a flip of a coin.
0: But these echo chambers, uh, you talk about something you call in the book a partisan pandemic. And I think we can, at least it feels like that's happening. Insurrection seems to be an indicator that something's happening. I know that Pew's research continually shows that we're Separating like a like mitosis of two um, partisan you know communities, uh, at least at least macroscopically two two big ones. Um, a lot of times though this is talked about as like the trade and in information, the bullet point in facts that are being talked about in one group are different than the other, and you talk about it as far as like ideological cocoons, but it also seems to me like your work showcases that it's so especially that's the the coin flip thing you did the social costs and the social rewards of trading in some information and not others has to be a big part of this uh i don't even know what i'm asking except to say like if we're going to address this and try to solve it it also seems to be important to figure out like do we even know what the actual thing is what is the thing we're trying to solve anyway what is the problem i mean what do you think is the problem
1: yeah so so first of all will say like with the pandemic it's And I've been studying it since the earliest days. Um, I wrote an article in the Washington Post, I think, like over a year ago. So like last March. Mm -hmm. And at the time, we were starting to see all these surveys, national surveys, showing that Republicans just didn't think the pandemic was going to be a big deal. And Democrats did. And the gaps were big. And then some political scientists were saying, well, maybe this is just like cheap talk. They're just saying this because they know Trump wants them to say it. And when a pollster calls, they just say this. Um, but maybe this isn't going to affect their behavior. And so then uh, I joined forces with a, a bunch of scholars. One of them was a former student of mine named Anton Golitzer. He got data from 15 million cell phones, moving from 50 million cell phones across the country, every part of the country. And you could see compared to the previous year, where people moving less, in other words, social distancing or not. And one of the biggest single predictors we found in that whole data set was whether that county or state voted for Trump versus Clinton. And the more Trump support they had, the the less they were following the social distance guidelines. And we thought, well, maybe that will go away over time as the pandemic spreads and, you know, may, maybe affects their community. And it's not just in big cities. If anything, the gap got bigger and bigger over time. The longer we studied it, the bigger the gap got. Um, and now, and then you saw that with masks, where, you know, Republicans, are, a lot of them are, many of them will wear masks. I just want to say like 70% of them, 80% might wear masks. But the gap between Democrats and Republicans was Twenty to forty points. Don't yeah, wear a mask. Yeah,
0: I can reasonably. yeah,
1: the, yeah exactly. Context. Most people support wearing masks, but the people who don't are almost entirely Republican in, in the U.S. Um, and they don't. And, and if you confront somebody, it's, they'll you'll often get backlash because you're kind of attacking their identity. You're not just asking them to put a small piece of cloth across their face. For them, for many of them, it was a signal of who they were and what their identity was, and what their belief system was, and loyalty to the president. And then now you're seeing it with vaccinations. And, and as we've rolled out the vaccination uh, process, uh, a lot of other gaps have gone away. It used to be in the early stages before the vaccine rollout started, black Americans were reluctant to get uh, vaccinated. You know, the history of distrust in the medical community um, and that community was hit the hardest by the pandemic. But that gap has completely closed. The biggest single predictor now who's refusing or reluctant to get a, vac- a vaccine is um, whether or not you're Republican.
0: They're the holdouts.
1: And if anything, the more we've rolled out the vaccines, the bigger the partisan gap has become. <laughs> so that gap has gotten bigger over time, even though we have you know, given 100 million people their vaccines now and it's very safe and effective. If anything, the gap's gotten bigger um, because Democrats have almost gotten completely on board and, and Republicans have not gotten on board nearly as much. And so in about a month, we're going to realize that's going to be the big issue to reach herd immunity is it's... At once, everybody who wants a vaccine gets one. It's going to be how do you convince these people, the the right leaning part of the country, the Republican part of the country? How do you convince them to get vaccinated?
0: Well, how do we do it? Um,
1: <laughs> so so it turns out there's a new study on this that came out. I think it was two days ago. Um, if they think Trump endorses it, they're more likely to get vaccinated. And and I also want to say just something that I think is really important. Um, and, and I saw this data from Rob Willer, who's a collaborator and colleague of mine at Stanford who's studying this, there's huge polarization even within Republicans. So we often talk about polarization between the left and right, between Democrats and Republicans. But if you look within Republicans, a, 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 chunk, a big chunk of them have, you know, are going to absolutely refuse to get vaccinated. But also the second biggest chunk of them wants to get vaccinated or already has. And there's very few people in the middle. And so it's not like a normal distribution within the Republican Party. In fact, it's hyper-polarized and I think that you're going to see that more, say, even among Democrats. There's probably hyperpolarization among lots of issues yeah. among uh, that Democrats are highly uh, divided. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, or, I mean, there's all kinds of... You know, one that came up during the summer was uh, defund the police. Yeah. hugely polarizing within Democrats. And then after the election, several Democrats who, like, lost their local votes or narrowly won were saying that was, like, a devastating position for the party to take. And then a lot of, like, yeah. the left-leaning part of the party complained that they lost for other reasons. And it was a hugely divisive debate within the left. And so I think as the parties get pulled further apart, you're going to sometimes, especially around moralized issues, see huge polarization within. So it's also one thing to be careful about stereotyping how Republicans feel about something and Democrats feel about it because it turns out the huge variation and contentious. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the other things that might help is if, as Trump and others support, uh, uh, you know, on the right, come out in support of vaccination, you might see that the, that the Republicans who support it can kind of come out of the closet. They can start to post pictures of their vaccine okay. on, like, social media or yeah, something yeah, yeah. without getting piled on by their neighbors because we're very segregated by, by party identity. A lot of Republicans aren't allowed to say that they support the vaccination effort because they don't want to face the social costs of that belief because they know it's, there's a lot of people who really despise it in that community. So you have to understand where they're coming from is actually a really complex situation as well. It's so,
0: <laughs> it, I, this is why I love talking to you, because it <laughs> so often comes down to social costs and social rewards. Yes. And we still live, I know this a bizarre, we still, for some reason, especially maybe it's an American thing, we just don't, I, I can feel it in my body. Like, I don't want to believe that's what's affecting my behavior. Yeah. I, think I, I, mean, yeah. this what I thought this was very, right. yes, that's quite yeah. reasonable. Right, 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 but clearly not. If there are people who are having anti-mask rallies and they seem to be in a particular group and not another then it is group yeah. dynamics that are affecting their beliefs yeah <laughs> now that's I mean that's what I wanted to, to kind of get on before we there is one thing that you uh, one of the piece of advice you have but how much of this a top-down versus bottom-up and what I mean is like if I don't if I'm the kind of person who wants to social distance and wash my hands and wear a mask yeah. and I also happen to be uh, a person who's also more likely to be lefty progressively y democratic it seems that there's a related in a way because there's compassion involved there's um, consideration of others there's uh, empathy there's commu- community right mm-hmm. it seems like I slotted in and it may I just happen to also be in the group and the group is not what's doing it and then if you're more right conservative Republican you might be feel more individualistic or more like um, you uh, heart you, you everything is the result of um, of grit and resolve and, and, yeah. and individualistic pursuit of of whatever right and uh, don't tell me what to do kind of stuff. Uh,
1: so how much? What is the balance between, between those two ideas? So, down bottom up in those regards. Yeah. So first of all, there is a big effect, especially in American politics, of bottom up political ideology. Mm-hmm. So so this is one thing we talk about in our book um, that about 40 to 50 percent of your political preferences are just genetic. You get them based on your parents. Um, and so, if you believe with, if you agree with your parents' politics, it's largely just because of genetics. It's probably not because they talked about it around the dinner table when you were a kid. So they know this from twin studies, where if you take identical twins, raise them in one in a Republican family, one in a Democrat family, the twins are actually going to probably have a pretty similar politics. Um, so that's a big part of it. A big part of our politics are biological, and we opt into certain parties or find certain types of leaders appealing because. They just fit us, and we don't know why, because probably a lot of it's unconscious. Mm. They just kind of seem to align with our dispositions and orientation towards the world. There's a great book on this by John Hibbing called Predisposed. Predisposed to like certain politics and parties and, and leaders. Um, and those differ from the left and right. Um, but I will say that that's, again, I said 40 to 50% of the story. The rest of the story is probably like top-down, shaped by community, by the messages from leaders, by by media. And so in the case of um, what's happening with the pandemic, one clue that... Well, I'll give you two clues about how we might think of how the Republican Party would have handled it differently. Um, and before I do, I'll just have a thought experiment for you. Okay. Imagine that Mitt Romney had been president when the pandemic happened instead of Donald Trump. How do you think he might have handled it? Do you think he would have handled it differently? Do you think he his attitudes towards the risks, towards masks, towards distancing would have been similar to I, Trump's or quite
0: different? I, I want to say different because Trump has seemed such a, like an anomalous human being. Uh, I feel like he would have gotten vaccinated in front of us, maybe. I feel like yeah. he would have
1: worn a mask. Yeah. So those are per, two of the pretty big things, right? <laughs> That's <to> actually, <laughs> other than distancing, those are the two biggest things yeah, he could okay. do. Okay. So you, so you have a sense that something would have been different. And then if he had done those, what, what, what would have his party members probably done, probably aligned with him? I feel that way. Uh, okay. We don't know. But we do know the last epidemic that happened in the U.S. was Ebola. And so there were surveys during Ebola of uh, the perceived risk that Republicans versus Democrats felt about that spreading and killing people around the country. And it turned out for that one, actually, Republicans were far more concerned than Democrats. And well, what was different during Ebola? Who is the leader during the Ebola epidemic? Obama. Obama. And so that tells you if it's Obama, they're very concerned that it's going to get out of control. Republicans were. Yeah. When it was Trump, but they, and he was telling them it was going to go away soon, they were much less concerned. Yeah. And so really that suggests it's the same people, for the most part, who are Republicans. Um, and so it suggests that their perspective and perceived risk vary a lot depending on what their leader's telling them and who the other leader, what leader's in power. And and then another example I'll say is just if you go north to Canada, you know, Canada's not the same as U.S. in a lot of ways, but pretty other, of all the countries in the world, is probably the closest politically. They've been growing increasingly polarized over the last decade or two. They have a conservative party, a liberal party, um, and they manage the pandemic dramatically better. In fact, there was an analysis from, uh, I think it was the Penn Medical School, found that if uh, Canada... If the US had just managed the pandemic as well as Canada, you know, through distancing and masking and stuff, then it would have saved over 100,000 lives. At this point, it might have saved two or 300,000 um, because that study was done earlier in the pandemic. And so, um, and, and then there was another study that found that, well, why did that happen? It, there was a political scientist uh, in Canada who went and looked at social media feeds of liberals and conservative leaders in Canada and found that they were both expressing concern about the pandemic during the early stages. And so it wasn't polarized, even though the country's polarized, they decided for whatever reason, not to polarize it in their rhetoric and their, and their expressions. And a lot of conservative leaders were very aggressive in like managing the pandemic following the science. Um, and, and then when you did surveys of Canadians, they were pretty similar no matter whether they were left or right about what they believed about the pandemic and their behaviors. And so it didn't have to be polarized, I don't think here. And, and then that's like a, that's the kind of the answer to our thought experiment is it could have been like Canada. <laughs> just,
0: you know, just, you just have a shirt. <laughs>
1: We're doing better with the vaccines, though. I have to admit. So, so I have my friends in Canada. Don't mean to brag on Canada too much right now, because they're pretty miserable because they haven't been vaccinating very quickly. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. Well, you know. Big, uh, yes. All right, I, uh, two final questions. One. uh is going to be, why do you think there's so much polarization all over the world all of a sudden? Mm-hmm. So that's the last question. But before that, you, you have this piece of advice, like, if we're going to disseminate information, um, and you basically say just do your best not to activate people's identity if identity is going to be a thing that causes them to... to Like, I've seen this all the time. Like when I tell my parents something, they're still pretty red state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll, if it's counter what they expect to hear, they'll say, where'd you hear that from? Because yeah. they're hoping that I'm going to tell them a source that they can discount immediately. Yeah. Um, so how does that relate to, like, in a situation like this, where we're trying to give people information that's important, you say don't activate the identity, how do we do that?
1: Yeah, so so this is a, maybe another way that identity works and affects people's beliefs, other than like dissonance reduction, like the cult members and rationalizing. The other way identity works is it's a heuristic. It signals who you can trust, and do you need to really engage in any thinking? Um, and so we... You know, when your parents are saying that to you, they're signaling that they're just going to use this heuristic. If you heard it in the New York Times or something or CNN, they're just going to dismiss it. They're not going to read it or think about it anymore. Um, and I have family members who are like this. They just want to know where something was uh, to know if it's worth even giving any second thought to. Um, and so the source, you know, whether it comes from a leader or, or a political leader or a media member or a media outlet, that's a heuristic they can use that... Who is that? Is that a, what person like me? Is that my in-group or an out-group? And if it's an out-group, I'm just not going to listen to it at all. And so there's not a lot of thinking going on there. It's a heuristic, and it allows that shortcut to just like not give it any further thought. Um, and so that works a lot in in terms of how we update our beliefs. And so one of one of my favorite studies on this was um, from Damon santola 's lab. At, he's a sociologist. I think you just had an episode of him, didn't you?
0: He's in the mix, yes. Yeah,
1: so he... Um, He had this great study on climate change. So they showed people uh, data from NASA, you know, really reputable, reliable source, trusted by a lot of people, showing like climate change data over a long period of time, and you had to predict was it going up or is it going down. Um, And he changed uh, information when people were gonna, then people had people talk about it, and you were gonna be talking about or learning from uh, from people who were either Republicans or Democrats. And when you were, Republicans were learning from Democrats, they didn't do much learning at all. Mm-hmm. In fact, they didn't update their beliefs about what was happening in terms of climate change. Um, the moment that he got rid of that identity information, Republicans updated their belief a lot. Wow. And, and so that seemed to be a case, uh, and climate change is going to be a big issue. You know, Once the pandemic's gone, that's going to be the, the tsunami that we're going to be facing for a long time, how to deal with that. Um, and the moment it's kind of in the, de- you're talking about data in the domain uh, of identity, where you know each other's identity, you might not trust them, or you think they have a political agenda that they're concealing, um, you see not as much updating, because they just use it as a heuristic. Oh, it's just a Democrat's pushing this issue again. Um, and so I think that that's one of those cases where you could probably get a lot further with Republicans by just getting rid of the identity queue. And th- there's probably issues where Democrats could gain, by, or at least be open-minded, if you got rid of the R beside certain people's name. Um, because I think right now there's just, I see this on Twitter all the time. The, the left does this too. They're like, oh, that's in the Wall Street Journal. I don't care at all. It, it, see, <laughs> it seems
0: sad to acknowledge that Al Gore may have done a lot of harm by just being Al Gore. Yeah. Just by being the guy who was telling you the most about climate change when we were trying to get ahead of
1: it. Yeah. And, and, and so we often think, so Anthony Fauci has become kind of a politicized, but there's a, di- a study that came out a couple days ago that when he goes on Fox News, it actually changes people's belief because he's not a political figure. He's a scientist. And we might think the people on Fox News aren't going to update their belief, not going to listen to scientists, huh. but, but there's evidence that it does work. And so I think there needs to be actually more crosstalk, ideally by people who don't have a clear political uh, affiliation or ideology or commitment. And, and you will find that people will be more open-minded to them. <laughs> the data from Fauci of Fox News viewers and the data on climate change from uh, Republicans both suggest that. And so this is something else I think is like a lesson for the left is like, you know, as, as a scientist, if I went on Fox News, I might be stigmatized by other scientists. They're like, why would you go on Fox News? I think you do need to go there. Yeah. I think you do need to treat people, give them an assumption that they're going to be open-minded, they're going to be skeptical. But give them the data, give them the data outside of a political context and from a messenger who's respectable. And uh, you will find that there, you know, you might be able to move the needle on a lot of issues that you don't think you can.
0: That's a good place to end. Okay. Uh, I, I will ask one other question, and I'll, I may not use it, but we'll end there and I'll sum up. But I want to ask this one thing, and know who knows what the answer to this is, but you may have something to say I haven't heard. One thing that has freaked me out, you we were talking about Canada becoming more polarized. And yeah. we often, I think we often think of this as this is something happening in America. What's happening yeah. to the soul of America? What's going on here? But yeah. it's, I'm, if I'm correct or wrong, it's happening in a lot of places. Why is the world getting more polarized? What's What could yeah. possibly be driving that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's is going up in a lot of places, going down in some places. So it's hard to say globally if it's yeah. going up. Right. But a lot of the places where we're paying attention to, like... like
0: populist movements.
1: Yeah, so populist movements are... are on the rise. Um, I've seen evidence that anti-democratic attitudes have gone up in places as they've gotten uh, faster internet connections. Um, There's some experimental evidence that people become more polarized if they're on, and this was uh, by some economists, where they gave people money to be on or off Facebook for a certain period of time, and they found out if they were on it, they uh, got more polarized. So I do think that social media has a causal effect on polarization, I mean, there's evidence that it does. Um, but the type of polarization you're talking about also is linked to what you said is populism. So it's not just polarization, it's anti-elite, anti-scientific attitudes seem to be increasing. Um, and so that's kind of the type of polarization you've seen in the UK, like after pro or anti-Brexit. Um, it's what you're seeing say in Brazil. Uh, so I have a, one of my close collaborators uh, is in Brazil and at one point in time, the three countries that were handling the pandemic were the worst were places that were polarized but also led by populists. Mm-hmm. And that was Brazil, the U.S., and the United Kingdom and Britain. Um, and so there are certain types of leader styles and a certain general skepticism about scientific evidence and and data that seem to be really core to that type of polarization that seem to be really dangerous in, a, in, in an environment like this. Um, there's some evidence that's linked to things like inequality. Um, so as you get more inequality, understandably, a lot of people get deeply distrustful of elites uh, and people who are running the economy and stuff like that. So I think that there is a bunch of things, economic, uh, the way the internet is being used and social media, the algorithms of, of some of these platforms seem to be very polarizing. Twitter and Facebook are particularly bad cases. So I think there's a, lo- a kind of a cauldron of a lot of things that seem to be happening worse in some places than others. Um, and there's other parts, other countries in Europe that are seeing this, you know, this type of populism Polarization. So I, I, it's certainly not something that's limited to the U.S. We've just had it particularly bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're one of the one of the worst. But there are countries that are worse. And um, yeah, it's well, not a good country, trend in my opinion.
0: Basically, you say it's complicated. Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I, I, no, that's good. I didn't expect that to be as <laughs> it. Uh, to to fully sum up, I I know that I I think I spent a lot of time in the the very Sciencey opening volley part of your book, but it's the part that, like, uh, the book is dense. There's a lot of stuff in there. Uh, So when does this come out? Do you know? September 7th. Okay. Thank you very much for letting me into your apartment, and I'm happy to be the first guest here in so long. And also, it is insane. This feels insane to talk to another human being and interview somebody in person. I've been Zooming for so long. I just want to say thanks a
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. As I said when you came in, you're the first person, like, other adult I've had um, in a year, over a year, probably like 13 months in my apartment for a conversation and it feels surreal and I really look forward to Everybody's having it all over and everybody vaccinated so I can like, have people over again. Oh, this is like this is like a light at the end of the tunnel we're kind of like seeing I right now.
0: I appreciate being part of that. This has
1: been the best. Thanks, David.
0: J. Van Babel's new book is... The Power of Us, harnessing our social identities to improve performance, increase cooperation, and promote social harmony. You can pre-order it right now, but in a couple of weeks, you can just order it, order it. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For links to everything that we talked about, head to smart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or Smart.com. Follow me on Twitter at David McCraney. Follow the show at Not Smart Blog. Also on Facebook at slash you are not so smart. Remember, six part seven hour audio documentary Exploring Genius available now at Himalaya Audio and in one week from the recording of this episode, You Are Not So Smart will be live on stage in New York City at Caveat. You need proof of vaccination to attend, and links to all of these things will be available at the website, on Twitter, and so on. Also, if you'd like to support this show, this one person operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other features go to patreon.com/you are not so smart pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad free but at the higher amounts you get posters t-shirts signed books and other stuff the opening music that's clash by caravan palace this music is by banjo apocalypse and if you really want to support the show the best way to do it is just tell one person about the show tell one other person that you like it or that you got something out of it or there's something they could learn from it tell one other person and check back in two weeks for a fresh new episode.